Good morning, everybody. So good to see you guys on this Palm Sunday. Uh, I see a few new faces out there. Really glad uh, that you're joining us as well, especially during this uh, kickoff to Holy Week as we lead up into Easter Sunday. This is, as Rachel said, uh, a special time for us, but not just for us alone, but for uh, uh, all those who would call upon Jesus uh, with faith all across the globe. And so we remember that today, that we're not alone in this room. Uh, just in this community alone, there's several other churches that uh, are doing what we're doing today, and we're circling around the Word, and uh, we celebrate that together. Uh, if you are a guest with us or you're joining us online, we're really glad you're here. We'd love to get to know you a, bit, a little bit better. Uh, if you would, sometime as I'm talking today, there's a connection card if you're in the room in the seat back in front of you. If you just take that out, fill it out. Stop by the Welcome Center today. They'd love to give you a free gift and uh, answer any questions you may have about things going on around here. And if you're online, drop a message in the chat and we would love to follow up with you that way as well. We're uh, in a three-part series finishing up today as we head into Easter called Jesus Is. And really what we've been doing is we've been looking at one statement of Jesus and trying to extrapolate out of that one statement, a really powerful one, uh, some, some statements that Jesus made about himself. Uh, matter of fact, uh, you can find it in John chapter 14, verse 6, and it goes like this. Jesus answered, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The interesting facet uh, of that uh, statement, or one of the many, uh, is simply the fact of when it occurs. When Jesus makes this statement, he's responding to questions about where he's going. Uh, it is sandwiched between the Last Supper, where he joined with his disciples, and uh, he announced to them uh, what we're going to be remembering today through communion, that his body was going to become broken, uh, that his blood was going to be spilled, and that he was on a road, yes, into Jerusalem, but it was not going to be what they would typically view uh, as a victory march. It was going to look completely different. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that where it ultimately culminated was with him hanging on a cross uh, as a public spectacle, and from a Jewish mindset, uh, the embodiment and representation of the curse of God. And when he makes this statement, it would have been really, really difficult for the disciples, uh, being good Jewish boys that they were, growing up understanding uh, all the significance of what the Passover meant and uh, who God was, to begin to wrestle with this idea that Jesus is saying he's going away but he's just made this pronouncement over himself on the last word that we're focusing on in this series, that he is the life. And just let that sit on you for a second. Let that sit on you for a second, because how is it that someone says that I'm going to my death, but I am life? I mean, that's paradoxical at best. Uh, some of us, uh, it, it's so difficult to maintain within our minds and within our hearts that we've cast God aside or cast Jesus aside as God, as the sacrifice for our sins, because how could God die? This is the question the disciples themselves would have been asking. Matter of fact, what's interesting about that statement that he is life has been something that's been consistent. Matter of fact, John, the guy that's writing uh, this particular biography of Jesus, uh, he is unique. In many ways, he's unique. He's unique not just in the, the tone that he writes uh, his letter, or I mean, excuse me, his biography, but he also is unique in the fact that of the apostles, he was the oldest one. He's the one that lived the longest. And you can kind of get a cursory look at some of his uh, interchanges with churches. He's got some other letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, aptly named. And what you figure out is over time, what John has done is he's had to answer this question over and over again. He's had to talk to Jews that uh, would have looked at Jesus' death as the curse of God. And he would have had to wrestle to the ground in terms they could understand. How do you actually bring some kind of reconciliation, some kind of harmony between these two realities of death and life? And as a matter of fact, this was the central theme of much of what John said. And you got to know, as you get older and you get more proficient uh, at your communication skills and on a particular topic, you get a little bit more precise and a little bit more descriptive of how you can reconcile and describe these kind of tensions. Maybe you do that in your work, the things, your, your profession, uh, you, you, you've done it long enough, you know what the questions are that when you're trying to make the sale, you know what they're going to ask. And so you've got kind of a calculated way uh, to actually respond. Maybe it's with your family and with your kids. You've got some, some years under you and you know the questions that are going to be asked because you had a couple that went before the last one. And you know you've got an answer kind of prepared 
because you know you've had to go down this path before. And Jesus, uh, his reconcil- the reconciliation of who he was, of both experiencing death as they were wrestling with and the life was something that John knew all too well was on the, on the minds of the early Jews. And he knew that it'd be on our minds today. And one of the techniques that he used in his gospel had a common thread to it, and it was life. Matter of fact, if you um, begin to read John yourself, maybe just over the course of this week, and you were to lead up to Easter just by a reading of John, you're going to find, if you're paying close attention, that there's seven statements in John. Seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. And John pulls these out because he wants you to know what Jesus says about himself. One of the ones is what we're looking at in John 14, 6, but there was a string of others. The first one you would have come across if you just went chronologically, excuse me, through John's gospel, it was Jesus' statement that he was the bread of life. You would have quickly come to the next phrase he says about himself, that he is the light of the world. And not long after that, Jesus would have said about himself that he is the door or the gate. And immediately tied into that thought, Jesus would have also called himself the good shepherd. And then immediately after that, one of his greatest miracles at the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then when you get to John 14, you come across the one that we're focusing on uh, in this period of time, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Jesus culminates the statements about himself when he says in John 15 that I am the true vine. Now, we're not going to break all those down because you know we don't have time. But one thing that you would see if you were to spend the next uh, six or seven weeks on these statements, you'd see that they do have a common thread. And the common thread that they have all have to do with is John's purpose for trying to say what Jesus said about himself. And it was all about reconciling the tension that we all face between death and life. You see, the common thread in all those seven statements is simply this, is the topic that they deal with is life. And if you're wondering why John talks about that, it's because it's the beginning and the ending of his biography of Jesus. Uh, You know, oftentimes when you uh, read a book, you'll come to what's called a thesis statement, right? Uh, Or maybe you remember back to college or high school when you had to come up with a thesis statement for a paper that you're writing for history or English or something like that. Well, the gospel writers did that type of thing as well. In ancient biographies, one of the things that uh, was common is that they wouldn't put the thesis up front. Oftentimes, they would put the thesis at the back. And if you go all the way back to John's, at the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30, we get a picture of exactly why John takes this technique to drive home this central point. This is his thesis of the entire biography of Jesus. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, the things that were chosen, the things that were picked out by John in his older age, to tell you about Jesus were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You know, John, on his heart, on his mind, the, uh, the effort that he was going through to, to say, how can I write this down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God directing his mind and his hands and his thoughts was to send the message and the communication that you can have the answers to life. And if I were to be really precise, I would take out the S at the end of answers. And I would tell you that what John wanted in his mind and his heart for you in 2021 is to know that you can have the answer for life. The answer is not uh, answers to multiple choice questions. It is embedded in the search for life that we all are searching for. You see, the questions that we're asking today are not unique questions. They're not not the first time that they've been asked. If you were to study history, you would say that they might have different names in the past. They may have come up at different times from different countries and nationalities. But what you'll find is, is that the questions that you're asking in your life, and I'm asking in my life, that, that questions of like, how can I find meaning in life? those deep, deep questions that at some point you're going to run into the wall of, that these are the very questions that humankind has been asking, has been embedded in our hearts from day one. It's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said when he says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. 
there is something, a longing for us for life. You, nobody has to tell you to fight for life. You know, I mean, if you were in a restaurant, and I, I had this happen one time. I was uh, in a restaurant, and um, we were, uh, uh, Veronica and I were on a date, and right at the table next to us here in town, there was somebody that started to choke uh, on their food. You know, and, and you know, you, you kind of always in your mind prepared, you know, you, you know, like, okay, I'm supposed to do the Heimlich, but then that moment happens where you're supposed to like, okay, am I going to be the one that's going to have to do the Heimlich on this dude? Is that going to be me? You know? But what got everybody's attention in that restaurant was one thing. What happened with a little piece of food that lodged in the throat of one person in the entire restaurant captured the attention of the whole restaurant. Because at the moment, the reaction was to gasp for air, to take his hands to his throat. And by saying that, what he was symbolizing is, I want to live. You see, we all are hungry for life. Nobody has to tell us to do that. That's something that God wrote into who we are. He placed eternity in our hearts. But what we're going to find out today is by looking at Jesus and looking at John's telling of Jesus' story is we're going to trace that theme that was introduced in John chapter 14, verse 6 with the life. And we're going to see that this was not just kind of ancillary to John's perception of Jesus. This was central. This is the answer to the question of life for all of us. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things, okay? I'm going to lay a roadmap for us because we're doing something a little different. We're not sticking in one passage. We're going to do an overview of John. And so I'm going to give you three hooks to hang the, the message today on. And we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is the source of life, that Jesus is the sustainer of life, and Jesus is the security of life. So just like you, um, we all search for how do we actually find life, right? How do we find life? Well, in, in a Jewish mindset, if we could take ourselves out of uh, 21st century uh, America for a second and we could uh, get in that DeLorean and go back in time and we were to go back before Jesus, uh, if we were to go back hundreds of years predating Jesus, we would have seen that God uh, wanted to answer this question at the outset. And the way that we see it first really uh, is that Jesus answers this question and God answers this question with his people the Jews. And they would have asked this question, okay, what, how do we find life? Uh, as God brought them out of uh, captivity and he uh, brought them into the land that he was preparing for them, he was creating them as a people by his name, and he was giving, setting before them opportunity. Opportunity that would have been probably summarized in the words life and death. And if you want to dig into that a little bit more, you can read Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy yourself. But what you will find is if you get to the end of that is they found life in two primary things in, in an ancient Jewish mindset. The first was they found life in something called the Torah. Okay, In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, we'll kind of give you a, a little glimpse at it. This is what it says. And when you and your children return to the Lord, your God, and obey Him with all your heart and with all your soul... According to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. You see, Torah became synonymous with the wisdom of God, the way of God. And uh, if you can imagine for a second, you're coming out of captivity. Where do I go? It's very practical. But it's not just, okay, what's the direction on the GPS? It's about how is life supposed to go? Who are we going to be? And they knew that they needed help. On this, And not only did they know they needed help on this, God knew that they would need help. And not only would they need help at the beginning, they would need help over and over to be a tether back to where life could be found. And what better way to see that than to actually see that in like, oh, what does the mind of God think about things? Uh, what is the God of all creation? What would he say? about how your relationships are supposed to work. I mean, if he is a grand designer, wouldn't it uh, be pretty much logical that he would know how relationships are supposed to work, how your finances are supposed to work, how the purpose and the meaning of your life uh, in all its intricacies, the thousand and one ramifications that God is there, that he's real, wouldn't it be logical to assume that you would need God's guidance and God's wisdom to know how to put life together? And so the Torah, the, the wisdom of God, the word of God was given to God's people to say, here's what life is supposed to be. And so when they had questions, you know where they went? They went to the Torah. They went to the word of God because it was the wisdom of God. 
But ultimately, the wisdom of God and the Word of God was supposed to trace their steps back to one particular source, and that was the person of God. Not only did they look to the Torah, but they looked to Yahweh. Yahweh was the covenant name of God. You can see it introduced here. It it, it pops up in Exodus and other places and on through their history. But this is a really good glimpse at it. This is what it says in verse 19 down in Deuteronomy 30. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And this is God's heart again, right? Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give you and to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, that statement that you see right at the end of that, the Lord is life, you'll notice that it's in all caps. The, uh, the word Lord is in all caps. And anytime you see that in the Old Testament, that's a particular name of God. That's the covenant name of God. That's the personal name of God that God gave to his people. It, you heard it when uh, Moses uh, interacted with the burning bush and he heard the voice of God where he said, I am that I am. That this is, I am everything that was, I'm everything that is, I'm everything that will be. If you're wondering what my name is, it is Yahweh. And so the transliteration is what we get of that because they, a, a good devout Jew would not, even, uh, uh, would not even mention the name of God. They would have so much reverence for this personal name of God that they wouldn't even speak it out loud because it embodied who God was and all his greatness and all his holiness, all his grandeur. And so when they looked for the wisdom of God and they looked to the name of God, they saw God's power and they saw God's provision and they saw God's wisdom and God's way. And this is important to us because we're all looking for the things that this answers. What does it answer? It answers the question of where do we find wisdom and where do we find power? You know, here's what I, I've learned about myself and maybe you haven't uh, got here yet, and that's totally cool, but the older I get, the older I get, the more I'm confronted with the, the aptitude of my, uh, my own wisdom. I mean, I experience it in leadership. I experience it in my, uh, in my own relationships uh, as a parent, as a husband, as a friend, uh, as a pastor. I experience it. I, I oftentimes, the older I get, uh, I, I find myself asking more questions than I did in my 20s. I find myself, quite honestly, uh, when I was in my 20s, I thought, well, I'll, I'll be pretty smart by the time I'm, I hit 45. You know, I ought to have some things figured out. And some of y'all are laughing because you know exactly. Like, now you're like, everything I thought I knew at 25, I now wonder what I know at 45, right? And I think we're, we're all searching, in the, searching for this same thing. And I'm, I'm searching for wisdom, aren't you? I'm searching for answers, I look at what's going on in our world, and I'm like, I'm I'm searching for answers. And I know that it's the wisdom of God, and I know it's the way of God, and I know it's the person of God that's there, but what I'm constantly confronted with is the own frailty of my own wisdom. But not just that. I'm looking for the power to go on in life, aren't you? I mean, with your job, with your relationships, with your family, I'm looking for the power that's at the epicenter of life. And here's what I know, that at some point, at some point in your life and mine, your wisdom will fail. I mean, look at your own worst decisions for a second. Guess who was there for every one of them? You were. You thought I was going to do this, but you did this. And what happened was the pain that ensued from a bad decision that was built on your own personal wisdom. And that's probably not just happened once. You can probably think of like the kind of the hallmark moment of that. I don't mean hallmark like the greeting card. I mean like this is the moment where I made a really bad decision, right? But that was just kind of the example, the, the poster child, if you will, of all the bad wisdom that you've employed in your life because your wisdom ultimately will fail. But what I also know about you is not just your wisdom will fail, your power will fail. Your power is going to fail. Your strength will give out. Your willpower will only get you so far with your habits, with your disciplines. You will give out. You will fail. 
And that's important to remember because what you need to know about Jesus is Jesus is not asking you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just exert a little bit more willpower. And he's not asking you to reason out all the grand thoughts and questions of life and eternity and how you reconcile everything in life. He's asking you first to come to him as the one who is all-wise, as the one who is all-powerful, by recognizing the frailty of your own wisdom and your own power. You see, the beginning point to life is the recognition that it begins with your own death, of your own brokenness. And when we look to God, he becomes the one who is continually all-wise, continually all-powerful. The first century historian said this about God. I think it's so short, but it summarizes so well that God is the beginning and the middle and the end of all things. You see, so here's the deal with Jesus. Jesus, in John's mind, answering the question that any good Jew would ask, how, how, if Jesus is God, how does he die? Well, John begins the answer to that in the very first words of his gospel. In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, you might be familiar with this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And this is what John says about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So you see what John is doing. He's taking as a Jewish thought... Who is Yahweh? Who is God? All-wise, all-eternal, all-powerful. And he is directly correlating that to the person of Jesus because the starting point for John is to understand that all life emanates from Jesus. Jesus is the starting point. He is the source of life. And if you look back to some ancient manuscripts, as a matter of fact, uh, if you go back to the oldest manuscripts and some of the oldest commentators of the Gospel of John. It's really interesting because there's a big wrestling match through the ages of exactly uh, how the translation breaks down. Uh, And you might have different translation than even the one I have. This is NIV. You might have an ESV or an ASB or, uh, you know, I don't know what you brought to you, a King James Version, what you brought with you. But there's been, um, through the centuries, there's been a lot of argument about exactly where does the period go and what is John saying, and how do you actually translate that? Because you know how it is, taking something from one language to another, oftentimes there's not the same word, or the word order is different. Well, the same is true when you read a Bible translation. Uh, There were people that worked really hard to understand the original text to bring it over. Well, in ancient manuscripts, there was a syntactical, um, I guess, uh, controversy of how this passage, how this statement about Jesus would be would actually be translated. And I'm going to give two of them to you. We're not going to do a big uh, Greek translation uh, lesson here, but I do think it's interesting. Because when we see into John's mind, both of these translations of the original Greek text have nuances and power in and of themselves. The first one would have been in John 1, 3 through 4. It would have done it this way, which is basically what you just read. It just says that apart from him, nothing can be, uh, came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And, and this is important because what this says is that life predates matter, okay? Uh, the, the things, the substance that uh, make up this table, the, the atoms and the molecules that make us up, uh, all those things that what, what John wants to know is if you go back before matter, life existed. And that life existed in Jesus, that Jesus was co-eternal with God He was uncreated being. He was here and everything emanated out of him. So if you're looking for life, you're looking for him because in him is life. But not just that. The other manuscripts that a lot of ancient commentators and translators uh, rested on, and they would have translated it this way, the same verse, they would have said, apart from him, nothing came into being. And then watch what it says. It's a little different. What came into being through him was life. Now, both of these are true, aren't they? I think you could go either way because one is that life is in him, but here's the thing is that life is in him, but also life came through him. That means that the matter, the things that you see, everything that you deal with and on a physical basis, everything came through the person of Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Okay, 
not just from a scientific standpoint, but why does it matter spiritually? It, it matters because oftentimes where we try to find the source of life, we look to created things, not the source of things. What are some created things that we, we look to life, to give us life? What do we look for as source? Well, oftentimes we look for other people. We look for people, don't we? I mean, it could be a dating relationship. Uh, it could be a spouse. It could be a, a child, right? Uh, it could be a friend. Uh, it could be a pastor. It could be a political leader. Uh, it, it could be all number of things, but we attach our life oftentimes to people. And you can tell what, what happens when your life is propped up on something that is taken away, can't you? When that person is gone, then life is gone. And I'm not talking about the normal mourning that we should all do. I'm talking about the place where we have rested our affections, our identity, our substance on the source of a created being, and people are created beings. But not only that, we also pin our source oftentimes on success. How are we doing? And that could be in your career, or that could be, uh, you know, how you're doing compared to everybody else that you follow on Instagram. I don't know. It's just a sliding scale of how am I doing? And the problem with that is you're measuring yourselves by yourself, Scripture would say. You're concocting a way, a source of life that cannot sustain. But not just success. Oftentimes, we just, uh, we're not really driven sometimes. We just want to experience things. We want to, experience, we want to um, maximize pleasure. We want to minimize pain. That's what we want to do. We want to experience as much laughter, joy, uh, and we can find that in a new house, a new car, a new, uh, you know, new set of clothes. You know, you can find it in all kinds of things. You can do it on a vacation, on a cruise. You can do it just, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever you're binge watching on Netflix right now, whatever the thing is for you, like you can find it in an experience. But experiences are created things. But some of us clean it all up. We complain, clean all three of those up, and we're like, well, that's not me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to rely on religion. I'm going to do religion. And what I'm saying about religion is I'm not talking about the, the true nature of the gospel. I'm talking about a, a, a man-made uh, motive-driven activity where I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do the things good people do. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give some money. I'm going to be a nice guy, nice girl. We're going we're gonna to do this thing, right? And, and so we create intricate religions. The world is full of them. Ways for us to have a source for life. Why? Because we all have to answer the question, where do we find life? And whether it's people or success or whether it's experiences or religions, the problem with most of our search for a source is we don't go back far enough. We can look to all kinds of things, but what... What John is telling us to do is he says, you're not going back far enough. If you go all the way back, if you go past the created things, what you will ultimately find is you will find what Philo, the, the first century philosopher, what he said was the unmoved mover, the one that moved everything, the straw that stirred the drink of creation, that what you would find in God would be the one that could define the source of your life. And I think some of us, we don't have to go any further. Some of us right now, we know, don't we, that the thing that we're trusting in, practically speaking right now, as we approach Palm Sunday, as we're Palm Sunday, we're approaching Easter, is we're trusting in things right now that are created things that though they promise life, can never faithfully deliver life. And so the unmoved mover is important. You've got to have something that you can locate the source of all life. And the reason for that is what you define as the source of your life will dictate the nature of your life. Whatever you're resting on, whatever you're resting on as the source of your life, if you were, if you were to play that forward and you were to look at the nature of your life, you would see that there is a correlation between the two. Uh, you, the, the nature of your peace and your happiness... Uh, uh, the solvency of your relationships, the purpose and the meaning that you find in life. It's not to say that you won't struggle if you're a Christian. Believe me, I know all too well that struggle is a part of being a Christian. 
uh, of following Christ. It's, 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 it's part of it. Uh, it. It just comes with the package. But what you will also realize is if you were to look at your life really practically right now and look at the nature of your life, and you were to trace it back, the things that you see on the surfaces are actually symptoms of a source. The nature of your life is dictated by what you have defined as the source of your life. And this is a wrestling because this, what this does is this merges two realities. This merges what you see in your physical world with what is, what is actually happening in your spiritual reality. You see, you are a physical and spiritual creature. You are not a spiritual creature with a body, and you're not a physical body with a spirit. You are a, a merging of the two. God created you with a body to actually be able to manipulate and work in his creation and worship him with it. And he placed within you the spirit that drives all of that. And so with that, what does that mean? That means that we've got to reconcile the practical nature of our life with the spiritual reality of our souls. And this is the wrestling match that we all face. Because what we have to find out is not just that we have a source, but we have to know what's going to sustain our life. This wrestling match between the physical and the spiritual uh, happened in in a story that Jesus uh, uh, is actually recorded and being involved in in John chapter 3. You see, the sustainer was a famous... uh, episode where there was a Pharisee that was named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Now this, don't skip past this. He comes to Jesus at night. Uh, he's probably a little embarrassed. He doesn't want all of his uh, religious uh, comrades to know that he's got these kind of questions, but here's what's happened. He's seen Jesus. He's heard Jesus. He's noticed that there were some things that he was doing that he'd never seen before. Uh, This was a religious guy. And so if you're looking for someone that had built uh, a source of life around religion, well, this is the epitome. Nicodemus is the epitome of this guy. He's the guy that you want your kids to grow up to be like. I mean, he's the one that is doing it right. He's not sleeping around. He's not going out on drinking binges on the weekend. He's not, he's not using people and trying to hurt people. He, this is a guy that's genuinely trying to follow God, and he's created a way for him to have a source of life. But when he saw Jesus, he was confronted with real life, and he didn't know what to do with it. And so he comes to Jesus at night, and he's wrestling. He's internally wrestling with the physical and the spiritual, what he's seeing and what he's feeling. And as Jesus comes to him, and he, say, he does this little introduction. Watch what John says is Jesus' reply. This is hilarious to me. Jesus replies, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Where did that come from? I mean, he just came to Jesus at night and said, hey, I've I seen you do some great things. And Jesus just jumped, jumped right in. Hey, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth, because I am the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. I think what he was essentially saying to Nicodemus in Dan's translation or paraphrase of the Bible, which is dangerous, I think what he was essentially saying was, what you're trying to find as your source of life is going to fail. Your wisdom is going to fail, and your power is going to fail. But there's a chance. There's an opportunity, and the opportunity is that you, what you're searching for, you can't find but unless you do this one thing, but this one thing you can do if you will do this one thing, if you'll be born again. Well, he says this. It's interesting the way that plays out. He says, very truly, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And that answer, uh, that was an answer to this question that he found in John chapter 3, verse 9. What's what happens? He says, how can this be? How can this be? How can what be? How can what be? Well, how can this be? How can I be physically alive and spiritually dead? How are you talking about, you're telling me I'm supposed to go back and be physically born again, it did not compute with him. Why? Because he was so pre-programmed to look for physical, created things to produce eternal life. And what Jesus was confronting in him was the physical, spiritual dynamic is the things that you're looking for, Nicodemus, cannot be found in the physical. 
They have to be found in the spiritual. How can this be? Well, it can be through one central thing. It can be through what Jesus himself was going to do. Because what do you have to do? You have to be born again. How many of you guys in here had anything to do with your own birth? Anybody? Okay, I'm just going to see if we could get you in touch with the doctor and let him re-educate you or her re-educate you for a second. Our physical birth, we had nothing to do with that. And what Jesus is essentially saying is your spiritual birth, you really don't have anything to do with that either. Now, that's something that God can produce in you. How is God going to produce birth, spiritual, real, eternal birth in you? How is he going to give you sustenance so that you can sustain life? Well, Jesus answers that very question on down in his dialogue with him. In verse 14, this is how Jesus answers his question. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. There's that eternal life once again. How is it found? It's found through the Son of Man being lifted up. We've already affirmed that Jesus is the Son of God, but another designation for him is the Son of Man. This is embracing what the Old Testament uh, prophets, like, uh, and this wasn't like Daniel. If you look back at Daniel, the Son of Man is going to pop up over and over again. But basically, this is kind of bringing into uh, correlation both the deity of Christ and the humanness of Christ. That he came in the flesh for us, that he actually had to come and be one of us. He had to have physical life in order to give us spiritual life. And so the creator of all things actually became uh, what he created. He took on flesh, Scripture would say. He wrapped himself in flesh. He emptied himself. And as he came in the flesh, he experienced everything that we experience. At the end of that time where Jesus is going in John chapter 14, when he's going to the cross, when Palm Sunday, when they're marching into Jerusalem, where was he going? He was going to be lifted up. How is he going to be lifted up? He was going to be stretched out on a cross. So here's the irony. This was what was happening in the room that night with Jesus and the disciples. How can death become life? Well, true life had to die so that you could live. That the one who was actually contained life within him, that everything emanated through him, he had to be lifted up. And in so doing, what did he do? He took on the brunt of our greatest enemy, death. He absorbed all the consequence of our sin. And in doing so, he now welcomed everyone else because he would say later that this lifting up was necessary. This necessary thing, you can look to John chapter 12 and many other places, but John chapter 12 says it really well. This is what Jesus replies in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We think of glorified, we just sang a song about it. We think of glorified as pristine, beautiful. But the thing that we read at the outset of the service, what, what, uh, what Rachel read to us was the, was the suffering servant passage from Isaiah. And when we looked on him, there was nothing to draw us to him. It was an ugly, ugly sight. But what Jesus said was that he has come, and now is the time for him to be glorified. Very truly, he would say, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he talking about? Is he talking about just hating life, being dour and sour and down all the time? That's what a lot of Christians think. We've got to be the most unhappy, disgruntled people on the planet, oftentimes. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about just have a, 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 a sour disposition toward life. He's talking about not linking your source and your sustenance to physical life. He's saying, I, I despise that. Why? So that I could take up spiritual life. And Jesus would say about himself, this is time for the man of God to be, son of man to be glorified. How am I going to be glorified? I'm going to die. Why? Because if I die as one seed, then I can produce many seeds. And if we were to go around the room, I wish we had time to do this. I, we could put a mic up here, a couple of mics. We go around the room and, and you could share your story about when you passed from death to life, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, when you displaced 
the power and the wisdom of yourself and place it on the one who's all wise and all powerful, the person of Jesus Christ. You could tell the story of how your life was transformed, how your future was transformed, how your family was transformed. How did that happen? That happened because the Son of Man was risen. He was raised up. Before he was risen from the grave, he was raised up. He was raised up on a cross so that he could die, so that as a seed that goes in the ground and dies, you would have a story to share. And we would have a collective story to embrace. And he says that if you do that, then you would, if you would let go of your physical life to obtain spiritual life, then you would find true eternal life. Another thing that John does, just kind of as a passing word, another thing he does is he takes what would have been con- considered a future reality, okay, a future reality, eternal life. A lot of us think of that as being future. And what he does is he brings that into the present. He uses present tense verbs to talk about eternal life. Now, that goes against the way most of us are programmed because when I say eternal life, my guess would be probably the vast majority of us would think about, oh, that thing that happens after we die. That's what we think. But that was not... Jesus' mindset, it wasn't just what happens after you die. It was about the security of finding yourself in Jesus and that your life actually has present-day ramifications. That it's not just about a destination, though it is that. It's not less than that, but it's so much more. And so what he's actually uh, introducing, John, is by using these present tense verbs for what we would consider a future tense reality is he's letting you know that the sustenance and the source of your life can provide the security of your life. One of the clearest places to see it is in Jesus' designation about himself in juxtaposition between what the thief does. And he embodies this. He personifies the thief by saying this way, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, what, what was he after? What was Jesus after? Jesus was after life that was really life. He was talking about, yes, where you're always going to be forever and ever in a state of uh, eternal existence. But he's also talking about the reality that eternal life is actually not a place. It's actually a person. Eternal life is not just about the removal of death. Obviously, it is that. But it's actually the introduction of true life. And so if you follow that train of thought, for, from Jesus, if you skip down to John 10, verse 28, down in the passage, this is what he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, I give them eternal life. Now, when you give gifts to someone, why do you give gifts to someone? I mean, I'm talking about not like the thing where you're trying to uh, earn favor, but when you genuinely care about someone, you're doing it because you love them, right? I I do that with my kids. Uh, We we set aside money on birthdays, uh, special days. We set aside finances and time because we want to give them good gifts. Why do we do that? It's because we love them. And if you follow through Scripture, what you're going to find is that life itself is actually tied to love. That life actually equals love. What God is actually doing is he's trying to take away the one that has come to steal, kill, and destroy in order to bring the life of love into your life. (coughs) It's what Jesus uh, has always existed in, in the Trinity. Uh, A mutual environment of interdependent love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this is what he created you to be. But you had a thief that came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's, he's working an operation in your life. He's working an operation in our world. And he does not want you to experience love. He does not want you to experience life. He wants the worst for you, not the best. He wants when you're down rather than to lift you up. He wants to put his heal on your throat and choke the life out of you. That's what the enemy wants to do. As I was thinking about that this week, my mind went back to a movie from 2008. I'm not suggesting this. I always hate using movie 
stuff because people think I'm like, recommending movies. I'm not recommending this necessarily, but in 2008 there was a movie called Taken. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Liam Neeson was in it. And there's a scene in there. His, his daughter gets abducted. And uh, he picks up, the, he's on the phone with his daughter and he hears her being abducted. And uh, he has this message for the person that abducted, that came to steal, kill, and destroy his daughter. And I don't have the quote down, so don't think I'm going to be Liam Neeson up here. But I do remember one part of it. He says, I have a particular set of skills. You know, y'all remember that? Some of y'all. I have a particular set of skills. And I'm going to be a nightmare for you. I'm going to find you. And he says in the movie, I'm going to kill you. Well, essentially what Jesus is doing, motivated by love, is he's bringing the death blow to death. Because if you were to follow John's first chapter out, he would say that the light has shined in the darkness, but the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, we have a God, a Father, who has a particular set of skills. And the particular set of skills that he has is to conquer your worst enemy, the enemy, the thief that has come to steal, kill, and destroy your life because of the consequences of your own choosing, of your own sin. This is Jesus. This is life. And you were to ask me, okay, Dan, can you give me a definition of eternal life? Well, actually, I can. I can give that to you. Uh, it's not my words. It's Jesus. So if you have a problem with it, you can talk to Jesus. But this is what he said eternal life is. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. Now this is eternal life. Here's your definition. It's got a colon and everything. That they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Life is ultimately a relationship. It was the relationship that you were created for in the beginning. Eternal life is not some destination somewhere alone. It's about who you're with. Home is who you're with. It's not an address. It's a person. And so what we have to realize going into Palm Sunday today as we come to the table is that life for us is not something that we find. We don't find meaning in life. It's something that's given to us. And that's why today, if you have put your trust in any other source, if you are worn out because you don't know the answers and you're, man, you're weak and you're tired and powerless, if you're wondering right now where to find security, you're in the perfect place to be given something to be given life. What do you have to do? Well, you have to be born again. How do you be born again? Well, you, what, is, what did John say at the very beginning? He says that you may believe on his name, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Belief just means transferring your trust onto Jesus, the one who came down where you are, lived the life you're living so that he could take out your greatest enemy and introduce you to life. And so today, I'm going to ask as we prepare for the table, if all of us in the room, if we'd bow our head and close our eyes for just a second, the band's coming out and they're going to sing over us in just a minute. We're going to do two things. One, this is an invitation time that's carved out just space that if you need to call on the name of Jesus to put your belief and faith in him, this is the moment to do that for you. Um, if you're weak and powerless, if you're ready to admit that to him, and you're in perfectly positioned to receive the gift of salvation from him. All you have to do, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. All you have to do is tell God that right now. Tell him you trust him. You believe him. You want to follow him. And he will accept you right where you are. In just a few minutes, I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying over you, as I finish that, what I'm going to ask you to do, if, if you're accepting Jesus today, I mentioned that connection card in the back of the chair earlier on in the service. If you just sneak that out, if you just take your name, fill that out, indicate the decision that you're making today so that we can come around, support you, pray for you, encourage you, celebrate with you. I'm going to ask if you'll do that. And if you'll, there's some black boxes on the way out. You can drop them in those black boxes or stop by the Welcome Center. The team's out there. They'd love to talk with you as well. But let us know. 
so that we can celebrate with you. But you call on him right now. The other thing that we're going to do is some are doing that in the room. We're going to prepare our hearts to uh, take the bread and the cup. So what I would like to do right now is if you did not get a chance to take those elements at the entries uh, of the room, uh, everybody's kind of in a posture of uh, meditation right now. If you just make your way, get that, return back to your seat, there's plenty of time for that. I'm going to give you just a minute right now just to consider what God's Word has said. Consider Jesus. Confess sin to Him. And then we're going to together take communion together. We're going to take the bread and the cup together. And we're going to read some things together and say some things together. But I'm going to give you a time of personal prayer and reflection first. Would you just pray to God, confess sin, and talk to Him right there? Father, we, uh, we come before you and we do what you called us to do. We remember your sacrifice, uh, the chastisement that was on you, the pain and the wrath that you took as a consequence of our sin. Lord, we, we come around that today. There's so many things we try to use to distinguish and define ourselves, so many different sources. We look to so many different things to sustain us. We try to find our security in so many different places and things and people. Today, we confess by taking communion. We confess together that you are our only source. You are our sustainer and you are our only security. We trust in no one else. For those that are confessing you as their Lord and Savior today for the first time, we pray over them, God, as uh, fellow uh, people walking this journey together. Lord, we come before you and we ask, God, that you would just uh, set them apart, that you'd help them to have the courage to share it with us on a card, something simple like that, so that they wouldn't do this alone. We know that you, this world right now, everybody feels so alone and so separate. Lord, would you bring us close to you and one another so that we could walk in boldness, courage, and strength. So give them confidence and courage today to share that. We ask this in Jesus' name.